Happy New Year. How are you? Good. Uh, can I just tell you how awesome your church is? And, and I want to I give you a specific example, okay? Uh, because just now here in the worship center and venue and Cactus and Mountain Valley and Chapel, you wouldn't know this. Folks listening online, you wouldn't know this. Even people over here probably wouldn't know this. Uh, we had a gal uh, pass out over in this section here, kind of go down a little bit ago. And I watched our safety and security team and our first responders here. And I say our because I worked here for eight years. Um, and I know those guys very, very well. Just converge like that and take care of her and help her and get EMTs on scene and walk out and make sure that everything was okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and so for those of you over in this section here, let me just tell you how she's doing right now. I stepped out with those guys and, and knelt down beside her and I said, hi, uh, what's your name? And she told me her name. I wouldn't tell you her name just in case, but I told, she told me her name and then, and then she said, uh, I said, I'm Lucas and I'm preaching today. And she said, oh, <laughs> like I was, uh, you know, I was a celebrity or something, you know, and it was, it was great. And I said, now, I want to tell you that this is the most effort anyone has ever gone through to miss my preaching. This is really <laughs> above and beyond the call of duty here. And she cracked up. So, so she's, not, she's not lucid is what I'm telling you. She's laughing at my jokes, right? So uh, we laughed a little bit together. She's totally coherent. She's doing just fine. We prayed together, and, and she is good and taken care of. And that is just a cool, isn't that a cool thing to watch when that happens? And I'm grateful for those guys. Thanks, buddy. You guys are awesome. Uh, did you know that the early Christian church held their worship services around a dinner table? They called it the agape feast. For those of you who know Greek, uh, agape means love. So this was the love feast. And it was a literal meal where they would have their worship services. They would sing and they would read scripture and they would tell stories of Jesus and they would uh, celebrate the Lord's table, communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call that. But they would do all of that in the context of a family meal around a dinner table. And that was a literal meal that they had, but that agape feast really became a little bit of a picture in the centuries that followed for understanding Christian worship and Christian community. It's as if the early church saw themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ adopted into the family of God. And so as they behaved together in community, they did so as if they were gathered around a table, not just during that literal meal, but that kind of found its way into all aspects of their life. So here's what I want to do for us this morning. What I want to do is take that idea of the agape feast, the love feast, a, a dinner table, a family meal, and use it as a metaphor to help us understand what Christian community is about. And I want to take one principle, just one, and exhort you with it for this new year, January 2017 here as we're going forward. And, and, and here's, here's my promise to you. If you take this one principle that we're going to look at this morning and apply it to your life, if we can change our minds a little bit here and see Christian community differently, it will 100% radically change your view of and experience of church. I promise you. I'll promise you. Take this one principle and apply it. It will change the way you do Christian community. So before we do that, those of you in the worship center and all of our campuses and online uh, joining with us, let's pray together and invite God to speak. 
God, we are grateful for your presence here. We're grateful for the safety and security team, first responders, uh, for the ways that you have empowered them and given them skills and abilities just to care for those who, who maybe need a little extra hand uh, this morning. Thank you for... Uh, again, I'm not going to mention her name, but so grateful, God, that you've just sustained her and kept her safe. Take the edge off of that uh, anxiety with, with their family. God, be near to them even now. So we, we are grateful that you're there in the midst of that situation and great, grateful that everybody's doing great and okay. Um, God, be with us now. Speak to us. Um, God, as Jamie has taught me to pray so many times, may this be your message to your people communicated through your servant, and may there be nothing of me that gets in the way this morning. In the name of Christ, the people of God said, amen. amen. So here's the deal. I don't know about you, but when it comes to a family meal, potlucks are always better than buffets. Potlucks are always better than buffets. I used to go to buffets when I was a kid, and I still have to go on occasion now, but there was one called Luby's Cafeteria, a little bit of a buffet. Anybody been to Luby's before? What kind of name for a restaurant is Luby's? Like, who thinks, you know what, that sounds appetizing. Luby's, you know, that's not, that, I'm not a buffet fan, but I am a potluck fan. I love potlucks because everybody always brings their best to a potluck. You ever notice that? Like nobody's just trying a dish for the first time. Nobody got something off of Pinterest and said, I'm going to try this. I don't know if it's good or not, but I'm just going to give it to some people and test it out on them. They always bring their best. They do that little sign-up sheet for potlucks. You know, it's like people sign up for a salad or a main course or whatever. Somebody to sign up for a dessert. It's like, we don't need any more desserts. We need salad. And like, no way I'm bringing a dessert. You can have it for the salad course if you want, but I am bringing a dessert because this is my best. Everybody always brings their best. I love that. And the great news, too, about potlucks is it moves us from being simple consumers of food to contributors to a family meal. I love that. Instead of just coming to eat and partake, we come ready to give, to bring a dish to share. Uh, Jesus said this in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He said, next slide and next slide. It's more blessed to give than to receive. What's he saying? He's saying that giving is better than receiving. Potlucks are better than buffets. Contribution is better than consumption. Potlucks better than buffets and contribution is better than consumption. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And interestingly enough, modern science and modern psychology has affirmed the promises of Jesus. Can you believe that, by the way? That like modern science is doing research and they're going, you know what, some of the stuff Jesus said is actually true. Who'd have thunk it? So one of the articles that I was reading a couple weeks ago is an article in the Wall Street Journal. And there was a psychologist and a psychiatrist that had done some research together and talking about when we are generous, when we are contributors, when we give of our time, talent, treasures, resources, skills, abilities, whatever it is, it scratches this part of our brain and stokes this part of our brain that releases dopamine and oxytocin and different chemicals that make you feel really good. When you're generous, it makes you feel really good. In fact, it scratches the very same part of your brain that gets scratched when you have sex or eat a big piece of cake. It's the same part of your brain. So for those of you who have committed to weight loss in 2017, when you crave a piece of cake, just write a big check. It's the exact same part of your brain. <laughs> The exact same part of your brain. It is better to give than to receive. It's better to contribute than consume. Potlucks are better than buffets. And here's the same thing. Contribution, not consumption, was the hallmark of the early church. 
the first century church was known for its radical generosity, for being a metaphorical potluck and not a buffet. And I wanna show you two passages where Luke tells us in Acts about the radical generosity and the contribution of the early church. The first is in Acts chapter four, it's up here on the screen. Luke writes this, he says, there was not a needy person among them, among the early Christians. No one had need, why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And there are some modern commentators that said, see, early Christians, it was communal living, it was communism, it was socialism. No, 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 that's not what's going on. See, these are private owners of private land and private homes. They're just selling them to give away. Being contributors, not consumers. Being givers, radically generous to the community of faith. Acts chapter two tells us the same thing. It's up here on the screen. And all who were believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See, in their extravagant generosity, their radical commitment to being contributors and not just consumers changed the world. No kidding. It changed the world that they were living in. Listen to what one historian writes, a guy named Rodney Stark. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He talks about early Christianity and writes this, and I quote, He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities. How'd they do it? To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but check check this, catch it, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. See, turn the world upside down because of their radical generosity. And it wasn't just the money, their money that they were generous with. They were generous with all things, their skills, abilities, time, resources, their family table, hospitality, generous with all things. And it changed the very world that they were living in. So here's what I want to do this morning because I, I love you so much. I love this church. I spent eight years here started the venue, helped start the venue. I mean, I love Scottsdale Bible Church so much. Here's what I wanna do. Because it is really good for you, because I love you, I wanna call you to radical generosity today. I wanna call you to sacrificial giving. I wanna call you to be contributors and not consumers. And I'm not shocked that I didn't get an amen just now. (laughs) Why? It's because of that one word. It's sacrifice, right? Because we like our stuff. We like golf and house and the boat. We like our hobbies, introverts. We like our time, don't we? We, we, we like to have our Sunday mornings free. We, we like to not have commitments. We like to have a little bit of margin, a little bit of space in our life. And we don't always like to sacrifice what God has given to us. We don't like that, but I'm gonna call you to it anyway because I love you and because it will change the way you experience Christian community. But I'm not gonna use the trinity of getting your way to call you to this and to try to compel you to sacrificial generosity. You know what the trinity of getting your way is? 
fear, guilt, and manipulation. That's the trinity of getting your way. So I'm not going to try to scare you into this. Like, unless you give, you are going to hell. I mean, I'm not going to do that. A, because that's not true, and B, because that's weird, okay? I'm not going to manipulate you into being sacrificially generous and being a contributor here. That would look like this. You know, we have 90 children in our children's ministry, and the woman who's currently caring for them is 90, and so you need to be over there. Like, I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is take a look at why the early church was so radically generous, why they were contributors, what motivated them, what compelled them, and I want to use that very same thing to try to compel you to be a contributor and not a consumer in this body in 2017. An interesting thing is that Luke in Acts chapter 2 tells us about their sacrificial generosity, but he doesn't tell us why exactly. But we can pick it up from context clues, what really motivated the early church to be radically generous. So look back at Acts chapter 2. We'll read it together again. Here it is. Uh, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Then he talks about their sacrificial generosity. Then he talks about they were selling everything and giving it to people. Nobody had need, okay? Keep reading verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So look up here at me because this is critical for us to understand. Luke talks about what's going on in the early church, what they were doing and how they were functioning. Then he says they were sacrificially generous. They were givers, contributors, not consumers. Then he talks more about what was going on in the early church. So for this section and this section is kind of the bread of the sandwich and the meat in the middle is the sacrificial generosity piece. So my question is, what's going on up here and what's going on down here that's motivating the early church to be sacrificially generous? Does everybody, ask, does everybody understand the question I'm asking here of, this, of the scripture? What is it that's motivating them? And we can pick it up from the context clues in the passage. So look back at it with me again in verse 42. It says that they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. Say this word with me. The apostles' teaching. And to the? And to the? That's both dinner table and communion and the Lord's table. And to the? And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and they were sacrificially generous and giving away a lot of stuff. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, see, they were getting together a lot, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, fear, guilt, and manipulation do not motivate us to be sacrificially generous. But you know what does? A radical shift in worldview. When we see the world differently than what the kingdom of the world tells us, when we see things through God's eyes, that motivates us, compels us to be contributors and not consumers in a church community. And this is what motivated the early church, a radical shift in worldview. So here's the deal. When you take a commitment to scripture, a devotion to prayer, 
getting together regularly in worship to celebrate communion and you add all those things up, you know what it does? It changes your worldview. It changes the way you see the things that you have. It changes the way you see the world around you and it compels you to be sacrificially generous. So here's what I wanna do. I want to walk you through that worldview this morning really briefly. Two things, two very simple truths that the early church would have known because of their commitment to the scripture, their commitment to prayer, their commitment to fellowship. Two things that they would have known that would have compelled them to be radically generous. And the first truth is this, God owns all things. God owns all things. I want to show you three passages of scripture that support this core tenet of what the early church believed. Three passages. The first is in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. Psalmist writes, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. I could probably just stop there, couldn't I? We don't even need the other two scriptures. Well, I'm going to give them to you anyway. I, I love this other translation of scripture in Psalm chapter 24. It says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Love that. See, he owns all things. Look at what David says in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. He says, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. Oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name. Stop there, this is awesome. David has rallied the nation of Israel to build a house for God. It's his temple. Now, he's not going to get to build it because he was a man of war. So he's going to pass it on to his son Solomon, that task on to his son Solomon. But before David dies, he gathers all the resources that are needed to build that temple. He gathers all the gold and silver and stones and whatever else, and he gathers all the human resources. And, and here's, what he, here's what he says. Listen, he says, all this abundance that we have provided comes from your hand and is all your own. It's yours anyway. Like we brought it, but it's yours anyway. Look at what God says to us in Leviticus uh, chapter 25. The Lord, or the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is, say this word with me, mine. Every two-year-old's favorite word. For the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Let's put that in modern context. For you are renters here, not owners. I'm the owner, the land is mine. Amy and I still have a house in South Phoenix at Baseline and 16th Street. We have renters in there right now. Could you imagine if I showed up and they had like torn a wall down or painted it Pepto-Bismol pink or something? You know what I would say? The house is mine. You're a stranger or a sojourner here and that would creep them out. But I would say, you're a renter, you're a tenant. You don't get to knock stuff down. That house is mine. See, God's the same way. He owns all things. The earth is his. Uh, for my first Father's Day, my little girl, who's uh, almost two and a half now, gave me a gift. She gave me a tie and a pocket square that she picked out herself, actually, which is great because she's 10 months old. That means she's smarter than all your children <laughs> combined. Um, so she gave me a tie and a pocket square for Father's Day. And, and I'll confess that as I was opening up the gift, I knew what I was getting. I knew what store it came from. And I also knew how much it costs. You know why? Because she bought it with my money. She's 10 months old. She doesn't have anything of her own. She needs to get a J-O-B, make some money, like contribute to food or something around here. Like that was not her money. She used my money to buy me a gift. Technically, technically, 
I walked away from Father's Day poorer because she took some of my money to buy something. See, it's the same way with God. C.S. Lewis calls this concept sixpence, none the richer. You cannot give anything to God that isn't already his. You are his. Your time is his. Your money is his. He owns all things. So here's my question for the scripture. If God owns all things, why has he given us anything? Because he's been generous to us, hasn't he? He's been good to us. Lest we forget, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, says that one of the very first things God does when he creates male and female is he gives them dominion. That word means control or sovereignty, little less sovereignty. He gives them some control over the Garden of Eden. He gives them the plants and animals and each other to enjoy. He gave them something. John chapter 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. Ephesians 1 said that he gave us status in his kingdom as sons and daughters. Romans 1 says he gave us his creation so that we could see his power and creative authority and glory. Romans 6 says he's given us eternal life. John 13 says he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us his promises. He's given us his word. He's given us divine help, power to persevere, and everything we need for life and godliness. This is the very heartbeat of God is generosity, but it's all his stuff. So why would he give it away? Why in the world would he give it away? And this is the second thing that the early church knew. And it's reflected all over scripture, but I wanna show you the one place that I think it's reflected the most, and then I'm gonna tell you a bunch of other places where it is. And it's up here on the screen, it's Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will do what? Bless you and make your name great. In other words, I will give to you. I will be generous to you. It is all mine. You already know that, but I'm gonna give stuff to you. I'm gonna give you a family. I'm gonna give you a nation. I'm gonna make your name great. So again, here's my question. It's all his. Why did he bless Abraham? Why? Why would God be generous to us? And he answers the question right here in Genesis chapter 12. I love it. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. So here's what God says to us. You are blessed to be a blessing. I have given you whatever you have so that you will be a blessing. You are blessed so that you will be a blessing. And in case you think that this is just in Genesis chapter 12, this is all over the scripture. Matthew chapter 25 talks about the parable of the talents. God has given to us and entrusted to us so that we could bless others. Luke chapter 12 in the parable of the faithful and wise manager. We are blessed so that we could be a blessing. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, as each has received a gift, you're blessed, use it to serve one another to be a blessing as stewards of God's varied grace. 2 Corinthians 9 says, God is able to increase your wealth. He will not certainly increase your wealth. Don't let anybody on TV lie to you. He is able to increase your wealth. And if and when he does, he does that so that you can give it away. Ephesians 4 talks about the ascended Christ, just giving stuff out to people as he ascends into heaven, just giving gifts away so that you could use them to be a blessing. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. So use your very life to bless others. You are blessed to be a blessing. Ephesians 5.16 says, even your time is given to you as a gift. So make the best of it. Use it to bless others. I love the way that Paul says it to Timothy in 1 Timothy. This is great. He says, as for the rich... In this present age, 
So for some of us, we're talking about, oh, good. I can check out for the next couple minutes because this is not me. I'm not rich. Like that's somebody down the road from me. That's somebody else in my neighborhood that wears a different watch than I do, drives a different car than I do, has a different house than I do. So just so we know that Paul is talking to us here, if you make more than $25,000 a year as a household, you are in the top 2% of the wealthiest people in the world. Not as an individual, as a household, $25,000, you are in the wealthiest 2% of the people in the world. If you've ever stood in front of your closet and said, either internally or out loud, I have nothing to wear, he's talking to you. (laughs) If you've ever stood in line to buy an iPhone and you posted about it on Instagram from your iPhone, he's talking to you, okay? (laughs) This is us. And what does he say to us? As for the rich in this present age, charge them, command them, exhort them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. See, if you're rich, God has richly provided that for you. You see it? You are blessed. And you are blessed, why? To be a blessing. Just so we know it's here in the text. Put it up here. They are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to what? Share. Same thing I tell my kids. Share. You are blessed to be a blessing. You are given so that you can give away. And sometimes some of us are not experiencing the fullness of life in Christ and the fullness of joy in Christ and the fullness of what he has even in Christian community. And you know why that is a lot of times? Because we've bought into this lie that the world tells us that if you're sad and not experiencing joy, just buy more stuff acquire more stuff. See, the world would tell you it's more blessed to receive than to give. But Jesus tells us quite the opposite, and science confirms it. See, we live in a culture of commodity, a culture of acquisition, where if we're sad, we just get more stuff, buy more stuff, acquire more stuff. We even teach our kids these things, that if you're sad, if you would just get another toy or get another thing or buy more stuff or amass more things or acquire more things, it will make you happy. And you might be thinking to yourself, I don't teach my kids that stuff. Yes, you do. You know why? Because I do too. Because I sit her in front of the little mermaid sometimes. And the little mermaid, Ariel, sings, look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm a girl, a girl who has everything If you know it, you can sing it with me. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's-its and what's-its galore. Come on, sing it out. You want thingamabobs? I got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Don't you test me on princess movies now. I am, uh, no one walks like Gaston. No one talks like Gaston. Uh. <clears throat> I could do a lot of them. This is a total side note. This is not in my notes, but one of my favorite things uh, right now with Kaya is she thinks I'm her prince. Uh, she's uh, two, mo- two years and a few months, and, and they always kiss at the end of the movie, right? So I, anytime I need a kiss, I say, Kaya, who's your prince, babe? She says, he says, you. And then she grabs my face and plants one right on my lips and then just giggles. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then I buy her a pony. Um, <laughs> see, the kingdom of the world tells us that things are a commodity to be possessed. The kingdom of God says that things are a gift to be stewarded. The kingdom of the world would tell you if you're sad and if you're joyless and if you lack life, just acquire more things. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Give it away. Be generous, what Jesus said. And this is not motivated by fear and guilt and manipulation. It's motivated by a radical shift in worldview, isn't it? It's not my stuff anyway. And I'm blessed to be a blessing. And it's going to bring me the joy that I lack. So I'm just going to give it away. There's a second motivator here in the text that I love in Acts chapter 2 that compelled the early church to be sacrificially generous. Again, it's up here on the screen. Luke writes this in Acts chapter 2. Next slide. Uh, So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In case you wonder, in the first century, they only counted men, typically. That's not good nor bad. It's just what it is, first century. So this means about 8,000 people came to Christ that first day. Peter, who they were just about to kill, by the way, they thought he was drunk at 9 a.m. and they were going to hang him up. He preaches a sermon and, and 3,000, likely more like 8,000, converted to the way. It wasn't even called Christianity yet, converted to the way. And then what happened? They got sacrificially generous. And then verse 47 tells us, the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. See, every day they saw life change. Every day they saw somebody redeemed and saved and purchased by the blood of the lamb. Every day they were seeing marriages healed and people uh, converting to follow Jesus and find new life in him. And when we start to see that around here, men and women of God, when we start to gather around tables and tell one another's story of I was lost and now I'm found, I was blind, but now I see, my marriage was in trouble and God saved me, my mental and emotional life was in trouble and God redeemed me, God has been good to me, God has taken care of me. And he's done that in and through the community of believers. And there have been people every day that are added to our number. It would motivate us to be sacrificially generous with all things. So here's the thing. We've already said that contribution and not consumption was the hallmark of the early church. So here's what I want to tell you this morning. That contribution and not consumption will be the key that will unlock your church experience. Contribution, not consumption. Giving, not receiving. Potlucks and not buffets are the key that will unlock your church experience. So for those of you who have maybe grown tired of church, for those of you who maybe grown a little bit weary of church, for those of you who like showed up on New Year's Day and drug yourself out of bed to impress a family member or impress somebody that you want to date or, you know, used to date and want to date them again or whatever it is. For those of you who maybe come in here on a regular basis and you cross your arms and you're kind of a curmudgeon and you're kind of a little bit crusty, like, and I'm not, I'm not talking about age there. I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about attitude. You want to change your church experience and make it something that is life-giving, something that you'd rather be here instead of at brunch? Be a contributor this year. Make the move from consumer to contributor. 
Because here's the thing, if we come in with the attitude of consumption, it will lead us to being critics. And critics become curmudgeons really quickly. See, this happens at meals too. Like you come in, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm paying for this meal. It's, I'm at a restaurant and my salad hits the table and I ask for no onions and I didn't like that dressing. And then my beef shows up and it's too cold and my drink's not good and it needs to be refilled and I didn't like the dessert and it took too much time. See, that, that's when consumption becomes critic. You are here to serve me. You are here to feed me. And you might not say that about church when I say, I'm, I'm, you know, you're here to feed me, you're here to be fed. You, but you know what you would say? I left that other church because I wasn't being fed. That's the same thing. It's the same thing. So you showed up as a consumer and it causes you to become a critic. And you say things like, you know, Jamie's shirts don't fit in, which they don't, that's fine. Like <laughs> he wears mandals, like whatever it is, which he does, that's fine. Troy needs to gain some weight, like a lot of weight. Um, Troy, seriously. Um, and you come in and, and, and you're a, you, because you came in as a consumer, you became a critic and critics become curmudgeons really quickly. And your church experience lacks life. It lacks joy. It lacks, vital, lacks vitality. It lacks all the things that God gave to us in the midst of community. In fact, if you just keep going down this road, I wanna show you where it'll eventually lead you. And I, and I wanna show you from a comment card that I received at my church. My church is not a perfect church. Love my church, love my community of faith, love those people very, very much. But I did receive one anonymous comment card this year that tells us what happens if you come in as a consumer, you become a critic, and eventually you become a curmudgeon. And this is a real comment card now. It's up here on the screen. And it reads this way. Pastor Lucas, we are only human. Please consider how low and tight your jeans are. <laughs> I got a couple problems with this card, okay? One, one is this, like, oh no, the offering bag is gonna come by, I better abbreviate one word, R, uh, which is kind of funny to me. Um, this, the second thing th that, that's interesting about this card is I have been squatting a lot this year and working on my legs a lot more. So my first reaction was, thank you, thank you for noticing, that's really sweet of you. Ma'am, sir, whatever, I don't know. I don't know who wrote it. And, and the, the other issue with this card, it's interesting because the first thing I did is, is that I went out and bought Lulu yoga pants and preached in them the following week. So <laughs> oh, I didn't do that. <laughs> Much to their chagrin, I'm sure. Um, you see, consumers become critics and critics become curmudgeons. And you might be thinking like, how, how this, this guy, this guest speaker, he just showed that card in church. You know what? I didn't write the anonymous thing. Like, you wanna write an anonymous card? Don't be upset when Jamie shows it at my church, all right? Like, here's the thing. This is interesting to me, is that the people who are happiest at Bayview Glen, the people who are the most content are the people who serve. And the people who are the least content or the people that are just showing up to consume. Because when you're a contributor, it leads to contentment, and contentment leads to having real church. When you are a contributor, and I'm not just saying, put it, you know, give money. That's not what, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about generosity with all things. I'm gonna give my time, skills, talent, resources. I'm gonna serve on the safety and security team and help with situations like that. 
God has blessed me, so I am rich in this present age, so I'm going to give money away in order to bless other people. I've been given the gift of hospitality, so I'm going to open my home. I'm going to get in a small group that that makes a difference and and that I'm going to be a part of week in and week out and be a contributor there. I'm going to find a place to contribute. I'm going to serve on junior high staff, which is totally crazy, by the way. Like, hanging out with junior high kids all the time, you are nutso. But that's a way to contribute. They smell like Skittles and B.O., like all the time. I don't know how that is. Like what is, no, that's a weird combo. But junior high leaders, we love you. You are, you are big contributors here, all right? Keep doing what you're doing. But contribution leads to contentment. If you lack contentment in your church experience, please rewind back to here and ask yourself, am I a consumer or am I a contributor? Because God's given us the opportunity, men and women, to be involved in a glorious exchange. And the glorious exchange is this. We would trade in things that are temporal, things that moths will eat and rust will destroy. You won't always have the skills and abilities you have. You won't always have the time you have. You won't always have the resources you have. But you can trade those in for something that will last forever. Life change. Now, that's a pretty good deal. And and in the process, you'll find yourself being more content and happier because potlucks are better than buffets. Contribution is better than consumption. As Jesus would say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I I wanted to preach this message this morning because I I think it's biblical. Not just I think it's biblical, it is biblical. But I also wanted to preach it this morning because it means a great deal to me and to uh, my family this year because on a a one to 10, one being the worst and 10 being the best, uh, we've had about a minus four as a family uh, this year. Uh, last year, I, I told you guys that, mm, pardon me, I'm not feeling well. Anybody else not feeling well? Yeah, good. Shake some hands um, <laughs> around you. Lick your hand and touch somebody. Sorry. Um, so last year, I told you in um, December when I was here that uh, Kaya's birth mom, uh, our two-and-a-half-year-old, called us in December and said that she was pregnant. Same birth dad, full biological sibling, and asked if we would be willing to adopt that baby. And we said, yeah, absolutely, we would love to do that. So last December, uh, we started on that adoption process. Kaya has two older full biological siblings, and then Kaya was number three. And then uh, the fourth was, was on the way. So we started, you know, the process of getting our home study done and all that update. And it's a lot of rigmarole and red tape. It takes a really long time. If they did like 10% of the checking for biological parents as they did for adoptive parents, our world would be a much different place, by the way, because um, they, they check you pretty good. And so we did all that stuff, and we paid for birth mom expenses all the way through, and Amy made a few trips down to uh, Florida where, where Kai was born, where her uh, birth mom and birth dad lived, just to be alongside them through the process. And then in July... We traveled down a couple days in advance of the scheduled C-section. We were there on the day of the C-section. We prayed with them before she went back in to have a C. She had a C-section, a couple of complications, nothing big, but caused her to be in the hospital for a few extra days. So for four or five days, we spent time in the hospital and did every change and every feeding. And Amy cared for birth mom and for baby. And we cared for kids and we did everything we could. Amy spent a couple of nights in there and And uh, that next Saturday, about an hour before she was released from the hospital, she decided uh, not to place the baby for adoption. She decided to to keep the baby. Uh, For those of you who may not understand what that feels like, um, 
they, whoever, whoever they are, would say that the grief of losing an adoption, or a, it's called a failed adoption, that the grief of an adoption failing is similar to uh, losing a child in death. So, so, so listen, um, <clears throat> for those of you who have lost a child in death, please understand I've never gone through that. So I'm not comparing my grief to yours. Can you understand what I'm saying? I don't know what that's like. Amy's never had a miscarriage as far as we know. And so I don't know what that's like. I don't know what that feels like. All I know is what I felt like and what experts compare it to. Uh, And I will tell you that walking out of that hospital room that day was the hardest and worst thing that I've ever done in my life. It, It broke me. Like I physically buckled. I just, couldn't, I just couldn't take the weight of the grief. And so for the next six months, in fact, that day was a Saturday. I got on a plane that afternoon and preached the next day at my church. Um, just loved on them as best I could and, and really let them love me. And I'll tell you over the next six months that those who had come to consume and then became critics and curmudgeons, they hurt a little more because I was tender it hurt. So my first encouragement would be, would be this. Um, you know, you, you don't know what your pastors are going through. You don't know what these guys are going through. And when you write that little letter that says this, that, or the other thing, when you say, you know, I came to consume and I wasn't happy today, you don't know what they're going through. Sometimes that stuff hurts a lot worse than you think it does. The second thing I would tell you is that the only reason Amy and I are still standing is because of the contributors in our church who gave financially, who gave of their time and energy and resources, who gave to us and opened up their homes for us and loved us and embraced us and did everything they could to care for us. And Amy and I continue to be contributors there too. She continued to sing. I continued to preach. We continued to do the best we could to serve and and lead. And I'm telling you, my level of contentment with my current church community is through the roof. They ain't perfect. <laughs> they ain't perfect. They think I need to wear looser pants, apparently. I don't know. <laughs> but those of us who say, you know what, I'm a contributor here and not a consumer, we love it. We love it. So my invitation to you, my exhortation, even my plea with you this year from a biblical perspective from a psychological perspective, and even from a personal perspective, is make the move. Make the move from buffets to potlucks, from receiving to giving, from consumption to contribution, and watch your level of joy and life in this church community go through the roof. Let's pray. God, thank you for those who are gathered here, and again, those uh, streaming online this morning, in PJs maybe, Um, God, thanks for the venue and Cactus and the chapel, Mountain Valley, all those who are gathered in one heart, one soul, one spirit, but in different locations and for the ways that you've blessed this church community, for all those who call this place a place where they contribute, maybe not just in, in a worship service, but in a small group or in a volunteer capacity or whatever, thank you. God, teach us to extract maximum life and joy out of our experience with your body by being contributors and and not consumers this year. Teach us that all we have is yours anyway. We are managers and not owners. 
Teach us that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. And God, may we see our personal blessing increase because we're committed to being contributors this 2017. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Happy New Year. Have a great day. Bye.